Welcome this evening. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires, uh, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, thank you that you are coming soon and your love is for the church and you are coming to take us. I thank you that we belong to you. We've been called in that we get to share in the joy of your presence forever and ever. And I pray that we would uh, live and walk according to that which we have been called. Thank you, thank you so much that you have washed our robes white by your blood, with your blood. And I pray for Barry now um, as he comes and, and teaches and, and uh, shares what the word is about. I pray that our hearts would be open and that we would have understanding and a ear to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that are visiting, a word of explanation. We've been going through the book of Revelation for quite a few months now. And the reason why we are here in this book is because where this is where we find our series. This is the last week because this is the last text. I'm not going to preach from the weights and measures and monetary units next week, which you'll find on the next page. It's the end of the book. 
and it has been a sublime vision. I won't say it's been a sublime series, but it's been a, a sublime vision. And the question is, what, what do you do with the sublime? How does it affect the ordinary? It's like seeing something extraordinary and witnessing something majestic and beautiful, and then the house lights come on. And you look at one another and you say, okay, what, what are we going to do with that? These are the final words of God. Those of you that are familiar with the Bible will know that I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes those of us that are familiar with the Bible need the obvious stated. Just stop and think about it for a second. These are God's final words to the church. Have you ever had final words ringing in your ears? Someone that wanted you above all else to make sure that this is ringing in your ears. Maybe the Lord will give you opportunity to have final words for, for somebody today. But these visions, the book of Revelation is at the end of the book. This is God's final word through the Apostle John and the, now the final words of the Apostle John to the church. And it is what God intends to be ringing in our ears through the generations. Why is that? Is because Revelation is a declaration of the summary of all prophetic utterance and all of God's purposes that he has ever said through any prophet, through any apostle, laid at the feet of the Lamb. For the church to see him in that. He is the, the longing of every heart that has ever had longings through all of the generations of God's people, right from Eve, when Eve had Seth and there was longing in her heart through the offspring would come one day. And you just look at all the prayers, think of Hannah, think of, of Mary, think of, of the, those that rejoiced over the, the coming of the Lord of Zechariah and, 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 and Hannah and Anna. This is all fulfilled in the visions. The book of Revelation is not merely a book to give us information about the end. That's how a lot of people approach the book. Well, if you want to know how the world ends, you go to the end of the book and you read the book of Revelation. That's not really what it's about. It's not a book to give us information about the end. It is a book used by God to get us to the end. Do you understand the difference? There's a huge and very significant difference. If all the book of Revelation is, is to give us information about the end, and if we neglect it, which I think it is largely neglected in the evangelical culture today because we're afraid of it, we're, we're scared of it, we're afraid we'll argue over it, we're intimidated by it, we're confused by it, but if that's all we're missing is simply information about the end, that's one thing. But if we are missing an instrument intended by God to give his people perseverance, the final words of God. This is what God wants ringing in our ears through the generations. Why? It's because God gives it as the final word in order that a struggling church would be able to endure, to persevere, to keep going, to continue. And so imagine the consequences of neglected it. And so John says, blessed are those who keep the words of this book. Which raises the question, how do you keep a vision? Can you read the book of Revelation and John says, keep this book. Well, how do you keep a vision? And we know how to keep law. If, it was, if, if, if the final words had been law, then we would know, you know, we know how to keep that. If the final words of the book had been ritual, just, just do this until Jesus comes. Which is maybe what church feels like for some of you, what we actually think about what we're supposed to be doing. 
then we would understand that. But, but how do you keep a vision? And as Josh read it, describing John's impulse, which was in the response to all that he had seen, was to drop to his knees and worship. That's how you keep the vision. John's impulse was, was absolutely right after all that he had, had seen, all of that he had witnessed about the, the throne of God and its superiority over the dragon who does not have a throne and all of God's transcendent cosmic power to bring about his purposes through the Lamb brings John to his knees. And he had, he had the impulse right, but he had the object wrong. As the angel responds to him, he says, No, I'm just, I am just a servant like you are. Worship God. John had the, the object wrong, but the impulse was right. And if we keep, try to keep the vision, if we try to understand and study this book without that impulse of worshiping the Lamb, then I believe that we've, that we've, are in danger of doing exactly what John says we must not do. Do not change the words of this book. I'd like to go over what I call a main point. This is the main point. This is the epilogue of the Revelation. It's the end of the, the book of Revelation. Do you know what an epilogue is? It means word after. It's different than a prologue, a word that comes before. And there's a lot of similarities between the epilogue and Revelation and the prologue and Revelation. But the difference of the epilogue is that there's more to resolve. You know more now than you did in the prologue. And all of the, all of the stuff that, that John has been shown, this is its resolution. And there are three dramatic repetitions of a sentence. And it begins with, I am. I am. I am. I am. I am coming soon, says the Lord. Now, the word soon doesn't mean that you can write it on your calendar. And, and, and it doesn't mean that necessarily that the Lord's going to come before you die. What it means is that John is living in the same age that we're living in. It is the age in which Jesus will come. can't write it on your calendar, but it's written on God's calendar as the next big event of redemption. There is nothing left for God to accomplish through his son after his death and resurrection and ascension but to come. It is the next thing on, on God's calendar that he's coming soon. And the vision creates a wait. And I think this is the point of the whole passage, that the vision creates a wait of certainty. You know what I mean by that? It, it's, it, it's something that has significance, that takes on significance in a person's life. If something has weight with you, it means that it, it has some determinative authority in the way that you think and, 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 and act and, and behave and, and live. And there is a weight of certainty here. And that's the, that's the point of the book, to, to give certainty to God's people. And the church was awash in the symptoms of uncertainty. You know that if you went to a spiritual physician, not a medical physician, a physical physician, but a spiritual physician, they would maybe be able to say something to us like, you've got the symptoms. You're, you're suffering. You've got symptoms of unbelief. You've got symptoms of, of uncertainty. Because they're very, very real in the life of the church, in the life of a Christian. When we lack certainty, 
when we lack the, the weight of certainty, it has very, a very, very real uh, um, symptoms in, in the life of, of the Christian. And that weight of certainty creates a path, a path for a dragon-oppressed church. Now, there's something that we didn't know in the prologue that we know in the epilogue, that, there, that the, 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 the reason for all of the oppression and the falsehood that the church is facing is because of a cosmic campaign of deceit from Satan. And the visions create a path for that church, that dragon-oppressed church, to flee, to flee the city of Harlot like Lot and his wife, to flee the city of the Harlot. You see, there, there, there's no throne in that city. There, there, there's no authority. There, there's, there's no power. There, there's no way that all that the dragon promises through the Harlot and through the city of Babylon to fulfill all of the deceitful promises that are promised to people. In the end, there's nothing but judgment. And so this is God's final word. This is God's final word to the church to give them a path to flee that city and to enter the glorious city of the Lamb. And the glorious city of the Lamb we saw a couple weeks ago isn't simply a way for us to imagine something architecturally, but it is to see a people. A, see, a people that are safe, a people that are secure, a people that are pure. I have two simple points to try to expound this idea of certainty and the weight of certainty, which I, I think is the pastoral goal of the book. Are you certain? And the first is this, that it, certainty arises from divinity. In other words, we need, we need some grounds for certainty. We need some reasonable cause for the certainty with which we have. It's not enough just to be a religious person. It's not enough just to be an optimistic or, or a hopeful person or be a part of a community that believes something. There has to be grounds for our certainty. And the grounds that John gives is a very, very clear reasonableness, and he grounds certainty in divinity. In the closing of the book, that's how the, the subject matter of the book is resolved. You can be certain, I am coming soon with a clear declaration and affirmation of the divinity of Christ. You see, without the divinity of Christ, there is no certainty. And that's the great contrast of the book, the contrast to the dragon, the contrast to, to Satan, and the contrast to, to Babylon, and why Babylon is so insecure. There is no divinity in it. Divinity makes all the difference in the world. And it is where the weight of certainty arises from. And so the angel says, worship God. Why? Because God alone is the one who can do exactly what John says God, Jesus, the Lamb, is coming to do. And the first thing he says is he's coming to bring recompense, coming to bring judgment, coming to bring reward for all that has been done to the righteous and to the unrighteous. And that is quotation from Isaiah chapter. I'd like to comment that the, the way that the John, John affirms the deity of Christ isn't simply to confess, I believe Jesus is God, though he did. The way that J John affirms the deity of Christ is using Old Testament text, like I just mentioned from Isaiah chapter 40, affirming that God alone is the judge. That is deity. That is divinity. 
Anything less than divinity does not return to the earth and recompense all for what, what they have done. It's very significant how John uses the, the Old Testament, and it's how, if you're, if you're wandering into the, book of Old, the, uh, into the book of Revelation, it's something that is very significant to understand. That what John gave the church to understand the revelation for generation after generation after generation is something that every generation has. It's the whole Bible. It's marvelous. It's fascinating just to get into the book of Revelation. You know, there's over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. John wasn't writing in ways to try to be obscure to the church. He's writing in a way that's trying to be plain to the church. And he doesn't simply believe, he isn't trying to articulate that something that is true about Jesus. He is claiming that whatever is true about God through the whole Bible is true about Jesus. Let me show you. Let me just show some of the words and vocabulary that John uses in these last few verses of the Bible. The root of David, for example, he says he's the root of David, comes from Isaiah chapter 11. The bright morning star comes from Numbers chapter 24. It's where Balaam prophesies from the mountain overlooking Israel that Balak had hired him to curse Israel and instead Balaam, uh, under the, the uh, necessity of, of God, blesses Balaam or blesses Israel instead and calls Israel the bright morning star which and both of those the root of David and the bright morning star emphasize the fulfillment of a messianic king not sealing up the words of the prophecy as John says here it comes from Daniel chapter 12 it emphasizes that John that Jesus rather has the authority that Daniel foresaw centuries before foresaw but he, Daniel was told seal up the book seal up the prophecy. Daniel foresaw it, but was told to seal it up for a later time. And that time, says John, has arrived in Jesus. The warning that John has here about not to change anything of the, of the prophecy or of the vision is from Deuteronomy chapter 4. It lifted right out of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And it emphasizes that these words might be delivered by John, but they are divine. They belong to God. Only divinity has the authority to say, do not change my word on the pains of curse and blessing for those that keep it. That is divinity. See what, what John is doing? He's not just simply saying something that is true about Jesus. He's taking all that is true about God and attributing it to Jesus as the final word as the instrument through which a church perseveres. Let the one who is thirsty come, John says. Comes from Isaiah chapter 55. Let the evil still do evil. He might have been perplexed by that as Josh read it. And let the holy one still be holy. That also is from Daniel chapter 12. And it emphasizes this. It emphasizes what happens to the human heart when it is brought into the presence of divinity. You know what happens to human hearts when they're brought into the presence of divinity? It doesn't happen when they're brought into the presence of, of anybody else, you, me included. But into the presence of divinity, something happens to the human heart. The rebellious become hard, and the repentant fall down in worship. This is a mark of, of deity. It happened also when Jesus entered into the world. He entered not simply as a man, but, but as divine. And the exact same thing happened in the Incarnation. Some people said, I hate you, I want to kill you. Others said, my Lord and my God. It is the mark of divinity. The first and the last, John says, Jesus is, is from Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. 
All of this is to establish certainty. Certainty arises from divinity. So when we get to the end of the book, when we get to the end of the Bible, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, John doesn't simply say, well, there, look, I've, 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 I've shown you how it's all going to end. Aren't you, aren't you glad I've satisfied your curiosity? Or I've, I've, you know, just follow these 10 things or do these certain things. No, the book ends with a vision and John says, I have shown you divinity. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is the path for the church. And that's the second part of certainty, that it is for the churches. Certainty arises from divinity, but it has an object. So the, the arising of, of certainty through divinity isn't just a, a theological abstract. It isn't just a, a, a theological truth that, that Christians are, are proud to know and, and agree with. That certainty has an object. And the reason why convinces us of, of certainty through divinity is for the church. The church is the object. That couldn't be made more clear in verse 16, where I'm so glad the book ends this way, where it says, I, Jesus, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, it says. For the churches. It's, it's for the churches. It's not to hit anybody else over the head with. It's not to scare anybody else out of hell. It's for to awaken the church out of compromise. It's for the churches. That they would have the certainty of a coming king. And the visions of a cosmic authority are for that church that is clearly awash in the symptoms of uncertainty. And so Jesus has already said to all the churches in chapters 2 and 3, if, if we read the book of Revelation, as I think it's probably intended to be read all in, in one hearing, we would still have these words actually ringing in our ears. I am coming from chapters 2 and 3. To each of the seven churches, Jesus says to them, each one individually, I am coming to you. I am coming to you. And he says, let, let those who have an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now, at the end of the book, having gone through the visions, we know exactly what the Spirit says to the churches. But there are things that they couldn't have known without the visions. There are things that you, that you don't know about the world and the cosmic realities around us just by walking down the street. They're not things that are, are perceived by our, our normal avenues of perception. It requires a revelation. It requires a vision where... where John, through God, opens up and shows things that could not be seen, that they needed to see so that they could endure. So let me just remind you of what it, what it looks like to be awash in the symptoms of uncertainty from the churches. Ephesus had lost its first love. Smyrna is told that you will face tribulation. You, you might even die. Don't be afraid of that. Pergamum is confronted with false teaching called the teaching of Balaam. You know what the teaching of Balaam is? Balaam who tried to curse Israel, as I mentioned earlier in Numbers chapter 24, and failed. And so he taught Balak, well, just, just show them or, or teach them that they can have it both ways. Just introduce your woman to them. That's the teaching of Balaam, that they can have it both ways. Thyatira is tolerating Jezebel. Toleration is a, 
significant word for Christians to, to think through these days. But that's exactly what Thyatira is doing, tolerating Jezebel, which is idol worship, syncretism. Sardis has soiled their garments. It's a, not a physical garment that's, that's soiled, but uh, a metaphor for spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to, to God. Philadelphia is full of people pretending to be Christians. Imagine that. People, pretend, people who want it both ways. People who want all the blessings and, and all of the comforts of, of belonging to the people of God, but, but secretly, they want all that the world has to offer. Laodicea is deceived about their wealth, and they are actually very, very poor. You see, those churches, and nor, nor any church today, can afford, nor can they endure, nor can they persevere, I think, they can afford to have a vision that has anything from this vision of Jesus subtracted from it. The vision, this vision of Jesus is for the church that we would be able to endure. That he is a king possessing unassailable dominion and authority, which makes a certain end of Satan's campaign of deceit into the lake of fire. You see, discipleship is worth it. If you ask that question, is it, is it all worth it? Is it, is it really true? Is it, can I really be certain about it? The point of this book, what God wants ringing in our ears, is that yes, discipleship is worth the cost. Not, not discipleship through law, not discipleship through ritual, but through the worship, the worship that washes our garments in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there, there, there's two blessings here. Uh, blessed are those who keep the words of this book, and then it says, blessed are those who, who wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb. And it's, there's actually seven pronouncements of benediction through the book. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. It says, wisdom has built her, his house, its house, and has hewn seven pillars. Seven pillars very intentionally as a, as a perfect number. In other words, it's, it's, it's like through the book of Revelation with its seven blessings, seven pillars have been hewn to invite the church into experience God's wisdom. I am coming soon. It's fascinating that it's, it's present tense. Not, I will come. It's not a future tense. It's, it's a present tense. And, of course, there is a future sense to it, that there will be a time, a, a climactic and final time when Jesus will, will come in the future. But when John says, I am coming soon, there's also a, a sense of, of anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus to the gathering of God's people in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to experience his coming to us and to renew and to create in us through that coming to us a desire in his second coming when he will gather us in as a shepherd into the new Jerusalem as a pure and a spotless bride. I have said that the Bible ends with the words that ring in our ears. And they should. These words should ring in our ears. I am coming soon. But what is the evidence? What is the evidence that, that those words actually have weight, a, a weight of certainty in our lives? That these words, I am coming soon, are, are ringing in our ears. And so there's something else in the text where, where, the, where it actually ends, where it doesn't speak of something that God puts to ring in our ears, but something that God says should ring in his ears. 
And this is what it is. It's, it's come, Lord Jesus. What a marvelous way to end, end the book, to end the Bible, to end the visions. The, the demonstrative proof that the people who actually have the Spirit and ears to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church have this on their tongues ringing in the ears of God through all the generations. Come, Lord Jesus. It's marvelous. Come, Lord Jesus. Ringing in God's ears through all the generations. You know, I, I've started to pray uh, more intensely. I have grandchildren now. Lord, would, would you be so gracious to give these words on the lips of generation after generation after generation after generation? Come, Lord Jesus. Paul ends the book of 1 Corinthians this way, where he grabs the pen from a scribe, and from a scribe who had been writing in Greek, and this is what he writes. He says, he says, in, in, in Aramaic, in a, a vernacular language that the people actually spoke, Maranatha, which means come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And he, and he gives it to them as a way of speaking to one another, of blessing one another, of encouraging one another. You know that First Thessalonians 5 twice says this in speaking about the coming of the Lord. Use it to encourage one another, remind one another, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Oh, you know, praise the Lord. The Lord is coming. Come, Lord Jesus. I've, I've grown up as sensitive to the shame and the condemnation of speaking what we call Christianese. And it, it means, well, don't say anything that could be interpreted as weird by unbelievers. Don't say anything that might be misunderstood or unintelligible to people who don't know Jesus. Well, well this is weird. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. This is, this is a different language. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not something that would be understood by, believer, by unbelievers, but God give us salty speech, <laughs> salty lives. Not something fake, not something that we've learned to say because, well, this is just the way Christians speak. No, but something that, that flows out of our heart. I, I was in a, in a place of, of, that was in the community of, of a business, practicing business this week, and, and there was something in my heart in the discussion It had to do with my, my, I was in a dentist's office, and there was just, I have issues with my mouth and in my teeth, and there was something in my, my heart that I wanted to respond to what we were talking about, and so I just blurted out, well, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> and you know what? It felt weird. It felt like I was speaking a different language. It was conspicuously different. But, you know, God help us to, to self-identify, you know? Pray for the people who are baptized tonight. May they go in this world self-identifying as Christians. Come, Lord Jesus, with, with, uh, with salty speech. They're words of hope. Why would we say that? Come, Lord Jesus. Because they're words of hope. That's why. Why would we say that? Well, because they're also words of refinement, aren't they? Right? Hope and refinement. What does it mean to wash your garments in the blood of the Lamb? Is it, is it an act of faith in, I believe that by faith alone, Jesus takes away all of my sin? Or is it an act of obedience that says, I'm not going to be defiled by idolatry. I'm going to keep myself clean. Which is it? is it? Is it faith or is it obedience? Well, it's both, of course. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. It's both hope and it is refinement. Conclusion. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This adds a, a, an element of, of normality to the vision when you think, well, it's been bizarre and 
ununderstandable at times, and then, well, it, it ends just like every other epistle in, in the Bible. Well, it, it is. It's a letter. It's a letter from John to the churches. Yes, it's a letter that contains a vision, but it's, it's a letter that has the pastoral purpose. And he says, the grace of God be with you. And what that means when, when letters end with that, it, it means may, may, may the grace of God enable you to understand all that I've said to you and to, and to lay hold of it and to live it out. So there's a particular kind of grace that John commends here. And it is the grace that enables God's church through this vision to lift our eyes to the Lamb and our hearts and speak the true longing of our heart, which is, which is come, Lord Jesus. That, that's the grace of God. There's no other explanation for it except that it be the grace of God. And the vision is to evoke that grace in us. You see, the book of Revelation isn't for the eschatologically interested. It's for the Christologically thirsty. Those are big words to say. It isn't for those that are curious about the end of time. It's those that, for those that are longing for a vision of Jesus. And through that longing are given the grace of God here to persevere. It's not to indulge in speculation. It's to grow in sanctification. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says this, that there's a crown laid up for me. And he says it is for all who love his appearing. For all who love his appearing. And Titus, the book of Titus says this, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you please stand with me? I'm going to close by reading a song, and then we'll, we'll sing immediately afterwards. This is from Psalm 96, and I use the Psalms a lot to help me to pray, and I believe that this is helpful to conclude these thoughts from the book of Revelation. From Psalm 96, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. Praise the Lord.